Today, Andy Woodard tells us his story of planting a church in New York City and rejecting the pressure to conform to the culture. I'm your host, Paul Horrocks, and this is the Biblical Courage Podcast. The Biblical Courage Podcast is supported by listeners. Visit biblicalcourage.com to learn more or sign up for our newsletter. So I'm here with Pastor Andy Woodard of Providence Baptist Church in New York City. There are a number of things about his story that I really want you to pick up on as we go through this interview. First, he showed up to serve. He came to New York City to serve people and serve the city, and he was willing to sacrifice to do it. Second, after Andy was here for a while, he saw the approach of his ministry wasn't working, and he changed his approach. A lot of Christian ministries don't really care about results. They just care about activity. As long as the funding keeps coming in, they'll just keep doing the same thing. However, we're called to be good stewards. If we just keep doing things that are ineffective, that's not being a good steward. So Andy reevaluated and changed his approach when it wasn't working. Finally, he's enduring the hostility of the New York City culture to proclaim the name of Jesus. So many Manhattan churches spend all their time trying to figure out how to make peace with the culture. But that will never work. There is no appeasement strategy that will satisfy the culture. The culture will not stop until you eventually compromise so much that you're preaching a powerless gospel that lacks the power to change people. We need to proclaim the name of Jesus and teach the whole Bible, even if it means people won't like us. Andy is doing that, and he's training his church to do that. He's a great example of what Jesus meant when he said, you're blessed when people speak all kinds of evil about you falsely because of my name. So, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, I want to start off by just having you tell everyone about your current church in New York City and when you planted it. So, I pastor a church called Providence Reformed Baptist Church, and we meet on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Our church started in August of 2020, so during the pandemic. We're the surviving half of a church split that I started in 2017. So depending on how technical you want to be, we either started in 2017 or 2020. And so before we get into some of the challenges of ministry in New York City, I want to go back and talk a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Manhattan. And so you told me that you had come in 2014 and you worked at a small church. So I want you to tell everyone a little bit about the mission of that church that you first started with in New York City back in 2014. Yeah, so I came here right after finishing a master's degree And I moved up to work for a food pantry church over in the Chelsea neighborhood of Midtown Manhattan. And that it it was a hybrid church and pantry, sort of a a inner city mission type organization. And um, we were receiving food donations from several grocery stores here in the city. And then we would uh, we pick up from them multiple times a day and then we would do food distributions several times a week. And people would come in, they'd sit through the service, we would preach to them, and then they would take their box of food and leave. So I was serving with that church. And at first, I was really, really excited. I thought, you know, this is great. We're word and deed, the hands and feet of Jesus. We are, you know, it's like the bread of life discourse. Jesus feeds them and then preaches to them. It's great. And then as as time went on, I realized like these people are only coming for the food. Many, many of them don't even understand what we're saying because I'm preaching in English and they don't speak English (laughs) and no fault of their own. It's just a fact of how that was. 
And I realized, you know, we're spending a lot of energy, a lot of time and all of our resources to do this, but it's kind of like a hamster wheel where we're just spinning our wheels. Like Jesus says that you'll have the poor with you always. So this idea of trying, like focusing your, your life and your ministry on something like eradicating poverty might not be so effective. But I want to the, establish though, that you moved to yeah. New York City with this idea of serving the poor. You moved to New York City yeah. to, to come to this church that had this food pantry, and, and that was your goal. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I came here for. And I was doing it 24-7 for two years. Uh, like, Well, 24-6. I had, I had one day off a week. But it was, it was intense. And the amount of work did not bother me. It wasn't, it wasn't the fact that I don't like hard work or something. It was realizing we're spending a hundred hours a week serving these people and they're not actually making progress. They're not getting better. There's no improvement. Uh, instead they're becoming dependent on us. So, so you started I to question that. the approach. In other words, it wasn't yeah. that you stopped caring about the poor. You just said, Hey, this approach is not necessarily working. Yeah. And the question started running through my mind of like, what if we tried to follow the Bible's definition of the church? Instead of saying, you know what, we're going we're gonna to eradicate poverty, we're going to eradicate hunger. Instead, what if we say, we're going to make disciples? What if we said, we're going to make healthy biblical Christians, and we teach them all that Christ has commanded, and we have sound membership, we have believer's baptism, we have all these, these practices in the church that actually strengthen the church and form a group of as we would say in ecclesiology, it's the we, the group, the us. Who who are we? Who is us? Who is this church? And we start actually having a group of committed Christians instead of just people that are coming because we're giving them food. And then they sleep through the sermon and they wake up at the end, you hand them their box. Literally, literally, they, they sleep through the message and then you hand them their box and they go on their way and carry on with their lifestyle that is extremely harmful to them. So that was my thought. What if we tried to follow the Bible? What if we tried to be a biblical church? How would that work? So that was the vision behind uh, leading me to resign and the vision behind coming back to New York. You made some interesting sacrifices in order to come and serve the poor. And just tell everyone, what were the living conditions like where you were living in this church when you first moved? Yeah, so the building was built in 1855, so pre-Civil War. The room that I was staying in had a, a bare concrete floor, concrete walls, and a plaster ceiling, and it was in the basement, so technically not zoned for this. And when you would bo- drop a box of apples on the ground floor up above my room, chunks of plaster would fall off the ceiling onto my bed. So every night I would come to bed and I'd like shake the blankets off uh, to, to get all the chunks of plaster and concrete off my bed. Uh, my room didn't have electricity, so I had to run extension cords from other parts of the building into my room so I could charge my phone and have a light and stuff. They were concerned in the winter about the pipes freezing in my room, but I, I didn't really hear much concern about me freezing during the winter. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was rough. Like, obviously, lots of mice everywhere. And, you know, as there would be in a food pantry, you know, you're basically running your grocery store. So there's lots of things for small creatures to eat. This, well, like is, this, said, this sounds like a like, lot of New York City apartments, quite frankly. It, no, it is. <laughs> the conditions were rough, but that didn't phase me. I but, knew about that before. Yeah, you were willing to endure that in order to come and serve the poor. Yeah. 
And you mentioned to me that when you moved to New York City, you considered yourself woke. And so tell me what you meant by that when you said you were woke when you had first moved to New York City. I didn't know the word woke, but I was kind of a bleeding heart liberal. I wanted to solve all the world's problems. And I thought that if we just like met people's needs and we do all these felt needs type programs, then we could fix it. And I thought things like police brutality is a major, major problem in our society. I thought like systemic injustice was like a huge problem, not systemic crime and like rampant wickedness, but like that the system itself was oppressing people. In my freshman year of college, my freshman persuasive speech was the death penalty should be abolished. I was that sort of person. I read the Gospel Coalition constantly. These were my people. And I went to all those conferences. I stood up and clapped when they announced that the MLK 50 conference was going to happen. I was like, yeah, this is great. And then things started to change in my mind. And I started to realize like, okay, there's some problems here. So reality met theory when you actually moved to New York City and saw, hey, this is what the implementation looks like. Yeah. Basically, free handouts, socialism, it doesn't work. It's really bad. It de-incentivizes personal responsibility and it dehumanizes people. It emasculates men. You've got these grown men coming and sitting through these services to get a box of food to go back to give to their family. And they're receiving it from a 25-year-old kid. That's not manly responsibility. That's the way a child would take food from their parent. I started to see these problems little by little over the course of two years. And then I was introduced to critical race theory, not by that name, but I was introduced to the teachings of uh, Abraham X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, not through their names, but through the concepts that they're teaching. And that was a, a breaking point for me where I was like, wait a second, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm just not. I don't think less of a person because of their skin color. I don't treat them worse because of their skin color. And you, uh, I treat them based on their, their actions, their conduct, their character. And you were actually um, serving in, uh, I remember you told me you were serving a youth organization. We won't mention the name, but a youth organization. Yeah. And it was predominantly minority kids and they needed men and you stepped up and did it. And then in the end, uh, you were accused of effectively being racist uh, while yeah. you're here trying to help. Yeah. So I, I was kind of pulled aside in a lunch meeting by my supervisor. And I was told that I need to understand these concepts of white privilege. And that's the reason why I think the way I think and my life is the way my life is and all this stuff. It's because I'm white. And then I was, I kind of pushed back on that and they're like, oh yeah. And you're also fragile too. You have white fragility. That's why you don't like being told that you're racist. And oh, you're, you've got colorblindness. You treat everybody equally. You treat everybody justly and the same. That's colorblind and that's bad. And all these things, it was just like being assaulted in conversations afterwards with a friend who's kind of an expert in some of these things. He said, Andy, you know what that is? That's emotional abuse where you're boxed into this corner and you're always wrong no matter what you say. There's never a way out. You're just cornered and then bludgeoned with this. And the only thing you can do is just confess and agree with it and, and surrender to their reality or to their, their narrative. So that was a major, major breaking point for me. I said all of the classic things that a CRT person would say proves that you're racist. I said stuff like, no, I grew up with a black best friend. I, you know, all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, that proves that you're racist. So it was fun. It, It definitely 
was a major point in uh, red pilling me, as they say. I didn't know what these things meant. I didn't know what these terms were, but it sort of primed the pump for me to be awakened to the woke movement and to understand who I had become through the blogs and media sources and books and things that I had been reading for several years. So now, before you came to New York City, what did you think of the state of Christianity in Manhattan? Like, what had you read about it? I heard that things were great here. I heard that Christianity in New York was at an all-time high. Christianity in New York is in the midst of a revival unlike anything that's been seen since the prayer revival of 1857. So I came to New York expecting that we're in the middle of a spiritual awakening. (laughs) Then I started going to these pastors meetings back in 2014, 15, there was this big preparation for Luis Palau. I didn't know who Luis Palau was. I didn't really listen to Christian radio as a kid and stuff. So I I just get here like, Oh, he's the, he's a South American Billy Graham. Cool. Nice. I'll go, I'll go to these meetings. So they start having monthly meetings with pastors from Midtown and Chelsea, the two neighborhoods that I'm closest to. And in these pastors' meetings, I, at the very beginning, my question was like, wait, what do we believe here? Like, are we all on the same page? Do we believe the same core doctrines? We all believe in heaven and hell. We all believe in the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus is the only way of salvation and conscious faith in Christ is necessary to be saved. Or do we have inclusivists here too? Do we have universalists here too? What about marriage? Is marriage a man, one man and one woman, or is gay marriage cool? I didn't know where people stood on those issues. And I started to raise the question at the beginning of one of those meetings. And whoever was running it basically just said, like, I don't know, we're we're basic evangelical Christians. And I was like, okay, cool. And I didn't really ask any further questions. Over the next two years, though, I would start having a lot of meetings with some of those pastors and, and other influential pastors here in the city. And I realized as they told me, quote, I don't care about theology. Mm. Uh, New quote. Oh, you're trying to follow the Bible? Following the Bible doesn't work. I used to think that way. But then I got here and I realized uh, there's a better way. Like literally this, this, this man is a prominent pastor with a thousand people going to his church who says following the Bible does not work. So that was a wake up call for me and realizing that there's a massive root of unbelief in the hearts of some of the most influential pastors in in Manhattan and that everybody's not on the same page and that actually the church and this revival or whatever you want to call it has been largely created through the church marketing movement and through massive external funding and big, uh, you know, advertising campaigns and that you're using things to appeal to people that are non-Christian. They're not necessarily bad, but they're not related to the Christian faith. So what you end up doing is drawing uh, a number of unbelievers into your service, into your church for the sake of, for example, social causes or politics or certain cultural uh, things, cultural agendas, cultural topics. So the result is you've got this group of people gathering every Sunday to hear your political talk or your your social cause, and they're not necessarily gathering for Jesus or to worship Jesus or any any actually distinctly Christian purpose. So then when... Uh, and, and to keep them engaged, like, you effectively have to compromise. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're embracing these church growth strategies like belong before you believe. 
and um, like, oh, this can be your church home, even though you're not a Christian. So I, a friend of mine told me about the time he was in a small group from a prominent church here in the city. And one girl in the small group said, yeah, can you pray for me? My, my prayer request is pray that my dad would be accepting of my same-sex relationship. Oh. And the person who was leading the small group was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, we'll pray for that. Oh, and, wow. I mean, we're talking like a PCA church. Wow. And um, I've heard these stories probably 30 or 40 times from people telling me these types of shockingly basic things. And the compromise is massive. And it's not haters. These are not, if you want to call them gossip blogs or anything like that, that's not what these are coming from. These are coming from concerned believers who love Jesus and they love his word and they see massive compromise in the most sound churches, the most reputable churches in New York City with the strongest reputations, there's there's deep, deep compromise. So as you talk to some of these leaders in New York City, do you get any feedback from them? You know, why are they so willing to compromise? Why aren't they more interested in promoting a biblical worldview as opposed to really this effectively syncretism where they're combining biblical ideas with worldly ideas? Uh, well, I think it comes down to the stuff I said earlier, it's, it's pragmatism. They want to do what works. And it's like uh, another major denomination where it, you've got quotas. You have to make your quota. You have to have a certain number of baptisms per year. You have to have a certain number of church plants planted per year. If you are a catalyst, uh, a recruiter of church planters, you have to plant, for example, let's say three churches per year per borough that you have to get started. And if you don't, your job's on the line because you're underperforming the same way you would in any job where you have to make quota. So I think that that's, that's a large, large part of it. In a lot of ways, see, many of these churches in New York are not self-funded because the, the attendees are not believers. They don't really give very much. And because of that, they can't afford to continue. So they need outside funding. So the churches are running heavily based on outside funding. And the way you keep the funding coming is from the results. If you can say, yeah, we had 60 people on Sunday. We had 70 people. We had 110 people. Wow, God is really working. God is moving. But we need you to continue donating, continue sending your funding so that our church can go. Like a church of 100 should be able to pay its own bills. Like if you think about it, if sure. you had 10, mem 10 members tithing, that 10 people giving 10% equals one full-time salary living at the same wage and the same standard of living as them themselves. So obviously people aren't going to tithe because like 10%, wow, that's a lot of money. So what if it was 1%? If you had a hundred people giving 1%, they could afford a full-time pastor. So the only reason a church of a hundred can't pay their own bills is because they're not, they're not giving. And the reason they're getting, they're not giving is because where their treasure is, that's where their heart is also. So yeah, I'm saying these people are largely unbelievers attending church for the sake of other things, whether it's cultural things or just they, they're looking for love. They're looking for relationship and they use the church for dating because the people in the church are seemingly nicer than in the bars. So um, <laughs> this stuff happens. It's rampant. I was told by a PCA board member that it was an epidemic. 
I was talking to a woman who's on the finance committee for the retirement council. And and she was like, yep, it's an epidemic. So it's very common. And so churches are compromising because they have to keep the money coming and they need the money because the people that are in their pews aren't giving. So at least if you say we've got attendees, then your donors are likely to view it positively because your donors all live in Florida or Georgia or all the Bible Belt states that get mocked relentlessly by these same people because Bible Belt religion is supposedly bad. But yet when they do fundraising, they go to Dallas yes, or they course. go to Florida or they go to you know these states that have a strong Christian community or Christian culture. So I don't know if I'm getting off topic. No, but, no, no. This is, So um, I want to yeah. really understand that. And I'm just curious, as you've had conversations, and I don't know if you've had the opportunity to challenge some of these leaders, do any of them have reservations about this approach? Do any of them say, you know, I don't love it, but this is what I have to do? I mean, I assume that typically... People don't start out coming to New York saying, I want to compromise. I'm sure that there's an incrementalism to it. They compromise a little and a little and a little, and eventually, all of a sudden, you don't look the way that you intended to look when you came. But but any sort of thoughts from, as you've spoken with them, are they saying, hey, this is why we're doing this, and, and do they try to justify it other than numbers, or you know, what, what's their thinking behind this? I don't think... Well, let me back up. I, I think that there's basically two classes of evangelical leaders here in the city. You have your average Joe pastor, and then you have like the leaders who are in charge of those pastors. So the leaders being the parachurch organization heads, the ones who are funding these church plants, the ones who are running the church planning organizations. So those types of people, I believe they understand the paradigms. They understand what they're doing. They understand the compromise. But I think a lot of these church planners, frankly, a lot of them don't really have much in the way of theological education. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them uh, have entrepreneurial skills and those sorts of things, but they're, they haven't deeply studied theology and church history and hermeneutics and biblical theology and you know Greek and Hebrew and Old Testament and New Testament and all that. So I think a lot of these church planners don't necessarily know the difference from from one approach to another. They're just doing what they're told, and they assume that the guy who's telling them what to do is genuinely Christian and has genuine motives and methods. And so... So this person over here had success, and I see that they're having success. I'm going to follow that model, but if that successful model is a flawed model, all of a sudden we have lots of people following a flawed model. Which then that stuff all ties into the Willow Creek model, which Willow Creek admitted in their study, I think it was called Reveal or something. They were like, yeah, this was actually really bad. And it didn't produce the desired results. So in here in New York, we still have hundreds of church planners following what is basically a repackaged, reformed light version of Willow Creek. And um, but that's an interesting of- thing to just talk about it at a very high level, that reveal study. Uh, they went in thinking that the number of activities you participate in with your church shows you're growing spiritually. And they found out that there was no correlation between the number of activities and your spiritual growth. But what did drive spiritual growth were getting back to the basics, reading the Bible, praying, being part of a small group, showing up on Sunday, tithing, serving other people. All those things drove spiritual growth. 
And they even found things such as listening to sermons online or listening to worship music were not bad, but they did not drive spiritual growth. And so, surprise, surprise, the answer was the model that Jesus showed us of discipling people actually works, and all of these other sort of social activities, you know, nothing, not necessarily bad, but they're not, they're not driving spiritual growth. I, I totally agree, and I'm, I've seen that. And people are, are coming in, and our church is very simple. It's very basic. It's very, uh, my, my church planning mentor was a missionary in the Middle East, and we followed the roadmap that he laid out for me in 2017, I think, 2016, 2017. And we have international students that come to our church from a university here in New York that has campuses overseas. So the students come here to the New York City campus, and their campus ministry leader is a friend of mine overseas. And he sends the students to our church, and he's like, hey, Andy, the students that get involved in your church, the ones who join, the ones who are committed, even if it's just for one semester, they grow so much that when they come back to our campus in the Middle East, we they've grown so much, we make them leaders in wow. the Bible studies because of the exponential growth that they've had, even just in four months of being with you from you know January to May or something. So I didn't know that. I'm just, I'm just here plodding along, but other people who are looking in saying like, wow, this is working. So it's really encouraging to keep going. So get back to the basics. So I know you've taken some heat for challenging this woke narrative and effectively saying your church is not woke. So what names have people called you? How have you been criticized as a result of saying you're not a woke church? Yes. So we printed up this flyer and we handed them out at a Christian college here in the city for a a church fair we were invited to come to. And before we did that, I, I ran it by one of the board members for the college and he said it was great. So I... Not that he's in charge of the college, but he's in charge of the people that are in charge of the college. And he said it was great. So we we did it. And <laughs> one or two of the students got a hold of these flyers and they didn't like it. So they sent a picture of the flyer to a woke activist on Twitter who retweeted the flyer. And the woke evangelicals went nuts, dogpiling, calling me racist. They said things like, how to say you're in the KKK without saying you're in the KKK. They said things like, white hoods required, just stuff like that. That was really, really dark and really evil. And if you've ever been to our church and ever been to any other church in Manhattan, you realize that our church is the most diverse church in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of evangelical churches in Manhattan are 60% Asian, 40% white. And that's just the norm for a lot of city center churches. Our church is really like 30% 30% white, 30% Latino, 30% black, and then what, 10% Asian or something. It's much, much more diverse. And we also have socioeconomic diversity. We have people who live in shelters and we have millionaires. It's not just a, a elite uh, upper echelon of society type church. So anyway, yeah, people were calling us all sorts of horrific things online and uh, for the first how does your hours, how do your church then, members respond to that when they see stuff like that? Do they get upset or do they just sort of shrug it off? I know it's you know it's not fun to be called those names when you're trying so hard to really several, serve God. Several of them started going on Twitter and commenting back and being like, "We're not racist." <laughs> we're, 
and, and I hate to even say things about skin color, but it was the non-white members of our church who were getting on Twitter and saying, you're calling us a bunch of white supremacists. We're not even white. And, but then that's where you hear Joe Biden's voice echoing in the background saying, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Sure. And that's where the CRT stuff comes in, which says, if you're not woke, you're not really a minority you have. And then, then like racist words, like calling people Oreos and stuff. You're like, Oh, you're black on the outside, but you're white on the inside. Terrible, wicked things that I've seen New York evangelical leaders call people on Twitter publicly. I've seen New York evangelical leaders call black conservatives Oreos and things like that. So it's really, it's abhorrent in my opinion. It's extremely racist and there's no excuse for it. Even if you yourself are a minority, you, you still should not talk that way. We weren't really phased by it because we're kind of a haven for people who want to think biblically. And so we understand that rejecting the woke narrative is going to get you called names. But it's obviously not fun for people to be called that. And it can be costly. And we'll talk about that maybe in a minute. But I want to talk about some of the things that your church has done to be proactive on really difficult issues. So I know in terms of speaking truth in New York City, your church has spoken up on the life issue. So tell us a little bit about how your church has gotten involved in that. So the issue of the unborn is something that I've, I've always been somewhat concerned about and somewhat aware of, but it's something that I really became much more aware of around 2018, maybe. Um, that was when the idea of actually doing something sort of came across my desk, like, wait, we can actually do something. We don't have to just pray for the unborn one Sunday a year, but we can actually get involved. So we contacted an organization out in uh, Arizona. They sent us some signs and we just went out in front of Planned Parenthood holding these signs like, hey, don't kill your kid. Like, we'll help you. And we didn't have a clue what we were doing, <laughs> but that was how it started. And then there's an organization called Love Life that some uh, a family that came into our church, they were connected with them. And Love Life had a whole system. They have trainings, they have mentors, they have curricula. There's just a whole program for it. And it was really, really great. And so we have a few members of our church who are on staff with Love Life, and then about six to 10 regular volunteers in our church who participate with the staffers. The Love Life approach is much more like they have rules. So one of their rules is don't speak over each other and don't like yell over each other. Like you need to have one person speaking mm-hmm. to the mom. So you don't have like four that I, they call us protesters. We're not protesters, but whatever. You don't want to have four protesters all yelling at the same time, trying to persuade an abortive minded mom. Instead, you should have one person very calmly engaging them in conversation. Like, hi, are you here for an abortion today? I mean, and then they're like, typically this is yes. called sidewalk counseling, sidewalk counseling. That's what it's often called. So having one person, perhaps a female say, hi, are you here for an abortion today? Like 99% of the time, these moms say yes. Like they respond instead of just storming past you. They, they respond, they reply. Then you get in, involved in a conversation and you say, you know, we're here with love life. We're here to offer um, hope and healing for, they have all these like lines that they basically have memorized. And a lot of women listen and talk and to the tune of like, they have two to three saves per week. 
So they've had hundreds of turnarounds in the last couple of years, just here in New York, where women change their mind. Um, because a lot of these women are abuse victims. A lot of these women don't want to kill their kid. A lot of these women are being forced to by their boyfriend or trafficker or uh, like the abortion industry is a massive enabler of all kinds of horrible abuse. So sometimes these women are looking for help and they find us there. We've had people come to our church because they said, I don't know where a good church is, but I'm sure that the Christians in this town will be in front of the abortion mill. So they went to Planned Parenthood looking for Christians. They found us there and then they started attending our church. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Anyway, I could talk for days about the abortion thing, but and this it's, is this is the um, it's been very fruitful. Yeah, the Planned Parenthood on the corner of Bleecker and Mott, which may be the biggest abortion mill in the country. Huge numbers. I've heard estimates very high into the like eleven or twelve thousand years. What some people estimate just on that one corner. And so I yeah. always tell people, the most violent place in New York City is on the corner of Bleecker and Mott. So I want to talk about how you deal with this with your congregation, because obviously they're living in this city that's hostile. And they're taking heat not just from non-Christians. In some cases, they're taking heat from people who claim to be Christians who are challenging them to be woke. So how do you disciple and encourage your congregation to live out their faith when it's difficult? Not to sound like too simplistic, but we just teach the Bible. We teach theology. We teach... Imagine that. um, All right. So you know Deuteronomy 6 where it talks about training your kids on the highways and byways while you're walking, while you're sitting, while you're, you know, in the morning and in the night, like it's sort of like Jesus's approach to discipling his disciples. It wasn't Thursday at 6 a.m. for an hour. It was all of life. So yeah, we have structures, we have systems, we have programs, we have trellises and vines, we have all of the, all the things, but beyond that, it's just normal in the life of our church to be having meaningful spiritual conversations all the time. So I I love church history. I've studied church history a lot. And in small group, for example, our the small group that I lead doesn't have a set structure or, or program. You just, you come, we talk, we eat, we pray. And it's not like a Bible study or anything like that. But just in the course of conversation, lessons from church history will pop up into my mind. I'll be like, oh yeah, that reminds me of, of, of uh, William Kiffin the early British Baptist who was a businessman who did the, the following things. He, he would bail people out of death row who were going to be killed by like Bloody Mary or some, whoever it was who was king or queen at the time. So drawing lessons from church history is a powerful, powerful tool for facing suffering and dealing with hostility. It also in our church, there's a very, very strong sense of community. I know community is a buzzword. It's, it's, used and abused way too much, but there truly is a vibrancy. If you watch any of our our Facebook lives for a church, you, you don't hear it on the YouTube because YouTube videos are just the sermon itself. But Facebook Live, you you see it start like a minute or two before the service begins, and then you'll hear it go a couple minutes after. And there's just the this buzz in the room, a vibrance of conversation. We don't do a 45 second handshaking time in the middle of the service. Greet your neighbor. We don't do that. I think that's irritating. I, it makes my skin crawl. Um, what are you going to have a conversation with somebody in a minute? 
Um, <laughs> so we don't do that. Instead, if you want to talk to somebody, you got to do it before or after the service. And people do. They stick around for an hour after the service, just standing there in the room talking. I wish that we had like coffee and donuts and stuff, but we're a church plant and that stuff costs money. So we don't really have any of that, but people still stand around and talk even without an incentive to do so. You don't have, so, to, you don't have to bribe them with free food. <laughs> basically, the food is great. Um, <laughs> if anyone so, listening wants to donate donuts, they can. Yeah, just set up like a recurring order from Dunkin' yes. and have it delivered every week on Uber Eats or something. That'd be great. Yeah, so just the conversations and then people doing it. Like, I'm not in front of Planned Parenthood every week, but our team is. I do try and go like once a month, but our team is out there like four days a week probably. So having a sense of community in that, a team sense, like you're not in this alone. You've got four or five brothers and sisters out there with you. When you get punched in the face, which has happened, our, our team has been physically attacked by people. Really? I guess think like if they're willing to literally abort their child, punching you is not a big deal. Yes. So this has happened many times. And, and there's there's a there's a demonization them. around that. I mean, without oh, a doubt, when when you it's horrific when you engage not not just with the mothers who are coming, but just when you look at the workers and the people promoting it and people walking by and and I've yeah I prayed on that corner many times and there's just real hostility there that sort of strikes you and, and shocks you when you spend some time down there. Yeah, yeah. When you see the name Margaret Sanger on that sign. You just get this like chill that comes over your body. The evil, the demonic presence in this space. And and for people who don't know, she was a eugenicist. She wanted to yeah. use things like birth control and abortion and so forth to get rid of undesirable people, which often ended up being minorities. Uh, and in fact, Planned Parenthood, after years and years of celebrating her, has finally asked the city of New York to take down that Margaret Sanger Way sign because they're finally acknowledging that she was, in fact, a eugenicist and not somebody who should be celebrated. So it's interesting yeah. that the pro-life movement has been saying that for years and years, and finally Planned Parenthood has caved to the pressure and acknowledged what everyone else sees is really true. Well, yeah. What about, I want to just ask, you know, where else do you see your congregation taking heat? In other words, where are they really getting criticized for their Christian beliefs? I think anything else that we're getting is probably on a personal level. Okay. Uh, just individually. So one thing we've done to try to help people not get fired, to not lose their jobs is, so we, we have other leaders in the church besides me. Like I'm not the only person in the church who is a leader type but rather than listing every single person who is of some importance in the church on our website, we just don't do that. Like I'm the only one listed there because I'm the one who's employed by the church. I think it would be harmful for their employment if their boss knew that they were a trustee of our church. Mm -hmm. We've had a variety of people lose their jobs or things like that related to objecting to vaccine mandates. That's not like a huge drum that we beat. It's not something that we talk about on a regular basis, but it is a very real factor. And our church is probably 50-50. Half of them are vaccinated, half are unvaccinated, but we are 100-0. We're all against 
the mandates. We're all against the tyranny of these things. We recognize that it is, it's not loving your neighbor to force them to do an experimental medical treatment. No matter what the articles say in Christianity Today or the Gospel Coalition, like the way to love your neighbor is not to force them to take this procedure that is largely untested and we don't know what the impact will be. Uh, and I think so, world governments are coming around to that view slowly. I mean, I think the UK just recently announced they're dropping a lot of their mandates and, and not just vaccine, but uh, mask mandates and, and other things. And so I do think that there's been enough pushback at this point that world governments are are starting to pull back. Yeah. I saw an article this morning from the fire department here, FDNY, that a fire chief is pushing back because they've had a larger number of firefighters just like drop dead with heart conditions and strokes and stuff like that, that like they don't normally have that because these guys are young, able-bodied, healthy people. And he wants them to investigate the link between this procedure, which if you say it, it might get you kicked off YouTube and these health problems like myocarditis and which, which wow. I think both the vaccine and the disease can lead to myocarditis, is my understanding, that both of them can lead to that. But, but there's, I mean, it's a whole longer discussion about medical ethics and, you know, one is uh, getting a disease and having something happen is not the same in medical ethics as proactively giving someone a medication and there being a side effect. So it's, it's a very different thing, yeah. you, know, you know, and that's... It's a yeah. long discussion uh, about medical ethics and, and how we should think about that. Yeah. We're not crazy for being concerned about these things. And yes. that's the issue that the broader evangelical leadership of the evangelical world is is doing. They're pushing a, a sort of gaslighting narrative to say, you're crazy for being concerned about this. There's nothing to be concerned about. But even the fire department is saying, no, there's there's something to be investigated here. T- tyranny is real and it usually creeps up on you. And so, yeah. yeah, paying attention to, hey, where is tyranny creeping up is a good idea for the church, especially when tyranny usually comes down on the church. Yeah. So tell me this, what encourages you about Christianity in New York City? Is there anything that is really making you hopeful that you look and, and you know, obviously you have your own church and your own people and stories there, but is there any larger trends that you see that you think, wow, that's really encouraging and I really want to see that grow? There's like one or two other churches that encourage me by seeing their seeing their faithfulness and their courage and their growth. But seriously, like here in Manhattan, there's not a lot of that. Here in Manhattan, it's just a lot of stories of compromise, stories of capitulation, doing whatever it takes to get a positive review in the New York Times. So overall, I'm not super, super optimistic about the, way this, the condition of things here in the city. I've heard that that things are stronger outside of Manhattan in the outer boroughs, but I don't spend a lot of time in the outer boroughs. So I think I've been to Brooklyn four times ever. Um, so it's just not like that was sort of a joke, but yeah, it's, not, it's a typical Manhattan. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like why would I go to Brooklyn? I've got everything I need yeah. here. Um, so I'm not that. Which people in Brooklyn with, can with, say, why would I go to Manhattan? So when, when we wouldn't be offended yeah. by that. Yeah. It's just, it's how things are. Um, Staten Island, where's that? Um, yeah. So overall I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful because I read the Bible and I see the promises of God, but 
I'm not terribly optimistic from looking at around in my, my circumstances. For example, the freedom movement of these people, like sort of the truckers convoy, like that type of person in Canada here in New York is very, very small. And the number of Christians who believe that tyranny is a problem is very, very small. These types of, if you want to call them political movements, I, I'm not sure if that's a fair assessment, but if you want to call it like these ideological groups have almost no Christians in them. I've gone to a couple of these events and it's basically all Jews and Catholics, but almost no evangelicals. And that's discouraging. Uh, that's disappointing. Uh, we put on a conference in December and I invited every pastor within about two hours of, of the city on multiple different directories and church network websites and no other pastor showed up to our conference. So I invited several hundred and not a single one of them came to our conference dealing with these very issues. So that's discouraging, but I'm hopeful because it's a very dark time and in the darkness, that's where light shines the brightest. And so honestly, it's easier to be a biblically minded Christian here today than it was 10 years ago, I think. So if somebody wants to learn more about your ministry, where should they go? Uh, I'm pretty active on social media. You can look look me up, Andy Woodard or Andrew N. Woodard. That's my, my Twitter name is Andrew N. Woodard. You can also see our church website, www.pbc.nyc, P as in Providence, B as in Baptist, C as in church, pbc.nyc. Uh, that's the entire domain name, so you don't have to type .com. Don't type pbc.nyc.com. That will not work. And I'll put that in the show notes, so it'll be really easy for people to find it. Yeah. So the church website, contact us form, contact information, all that is available. I'm happy to connect with anybody, even if you're just dropping through for two days and you want to see the city or visit the church or whatever. I'm more than happy to talk. Also, if you're interested in church planting or starting a church and you've got three people, uh, we started our church with three people and now we've got about 70. So we've been through all the stages from being a four-person church to being a 40-person church to transitioning into being self-supporting and all that. So if anybody's interested in talking, I'm, I'm happy to help. And I don't charge for that either. So yeah. There you go. Well, Andy, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. The Biblical Courage podcast is supported by listeners. You can support us by going to biblicalcourage.com. While you're there, you can also sign up to receive our newsletter. That's biblicalcourage.com. If you liked the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you didn't like the podcast, that's just dumb. It was great.